Welcome to We All Go a Little Mad Sometimes, the true crime and assorted oddities podcast with your host, Poncho. I have a face for podcast and a passion for true crime. Coming to you live on tape from the beautiful southeastern United States of America. On today's show, we're going to talk about a crazy lady. We've got a little uh, news about a crazy man. And we're going to uh, talk a little bit about a kitty cat. So let's get on with it. I haven't had an episode out in quite a while. For those regular listeners, I, I apologize to both of you. I know it's been a while, been busy. I work a lot in the summer. This is not my job. This is just a, a fun hobby that I do. And I play music too. And since I'm in the beautiful southeastern United States of America along the coast, we play a lot in the summertime. So anyway, if I had any sense out of I would have recorded a bunch of episodes over the winter and then, you know, slow released them over the summer. But I'm learning how to do this as I go. So here we are. I also did, um, I updated the show's email. So if if you haven't received any response from me, that means I didn't get it. And I've had a lot of trouble with my email. So I updated that. So, you know, send me a message. If you have any hate mail, keep it to yourself. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You have issues? Send it on. I'll answer. One of the cool parts of doing this podcast is that I get analytics from the host company. And it tells me where all all the listeners are. And I have tons of listeners in Florida, Tampa especially. All the way down to the Florida Keys, which is really cool. And I appreciate every one of you. There's a a bunch in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, Cleveland. I should just say Ohio. Because there's a bunch in Ohio. Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a bunch listening in North Carolina, Oklahoma, and a whole bunch in in Kansas, New York, California, uh, South America, Europe, the UK, France, Austria especially, um, Belgium, and I really appreciate everybody that that tunes in and listens. Uh, One day I'm going to do this full time, but right now I'm doing the best I can with what I got to work with. so. So thank you again, and let's get on with today's story. So this is one of those stories that it's as old as time itself. A lady, she's unhappy, married to a man she really didn't want in the first place, and he turned out to be worse than she expected. There's nothing particularly interesting about this case. There's probably a thousand cases similar. A woman hates her husband, wants him gone, and wants to get paid for it. I had heard this and read about this case several times, but there's two interesting bits to the story. Number one is how absolutely incompetent and stupid the murderers were. And two, the photograph. And I have it posted as the, the episode photo. And you can see somebody sitting in a chair and it looks like she's sitting on a rocket, rocket chair or sparks are shooting out of her butt or something. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that photo later, but it's an iconic photo. And the photo made the cover of the New York Daily News on January 13th, 1928. So, let's talk about it. May Ruth Brown was born in March 1895 in New York City. She went by her middle name, Ruth, and her close friends called her Tommy. Boy's nickname for a girl isn't unusual. I mean, isn't unusual. I call my wife Walter. So, she was apparently 
very outgoing and gregarious and and was actually considered a, a, a sexy lady at the time. But she also had an icy cold stare and a square jaw with a big dimple in the middle of it. I don't, I don't know. I guess maybe that was attractive 100 years ago. I never, I never thought of an icy cold stare as attractive. Anyway, she dropped out of school at, a, at an early age, which, I mean, that was common then. She gave her humble earnings to her family. And in 1914, while working as a switchboard operator at Tiffany Studios, she misdirected a call to a very gruff, rude man who seemed quite upset that uh, she had the nerve to interrupt his day by, by giving him a call. And later on, the man called her back and apologized for his attitude and introduced himself as Albert Snyder. And they, they seemed to hit it off well on the phone. And uh, Albert had invited her for a job interview. And Albert was an artist for, an editor and an artist for a, a magazine. It was actually a Hearst publication. So, I mean, it was a pretty good job offer. And Ruth got the job. Didn't take long before Albert was starting uh, flirting with her and taking her out for lunch and then dinner and then plays and all the things that the 1914 New York City had to offer. Now, Ruth enjoyed the dates and enjoyed being fussed over, but she wasn't really particularly attracted to Snyder and turned him down when he proposed to her that Christmas. But on her 20th birthday, Snyder put a diamond ring in a box of chocolates and she just couldn't resist that ring. Their marriage was pretty much a disaster from the get-go. Snyder was a homebody um, that did little but tinker with his car and his boat motors. Uh, Ruth, a vivacious and outgoing person, had trouble being tied to a person like this. Uh, Snyder was, the, like I said, the editor for a magazine. his Motor Boating Magazine. And um, that, like I said at the time, was the Hearst Magazine publication. <laughs> Motor Boating Magazine in 1914 must have been a hell of a publication. Anyway, he made $100 a week, which is over $3,000 in today's money. So it wasn't a bad, you know, it wasn't a bad job. And they lived in a modest house in Queens, New York. And like uh, many of those manly men, guys of the time demanded that his wife keep a meticulous house and do the cooking and the cleaning. And he did whatever the hell he wanted. You know, important things like go fishing and tinker around the shop and go fishing, work on his car, go fishing. That kind of thing. The couple had absolutely nothing in common. Not to mention, Snyder was 13 years older than Ruth. There was also another issue. At one time, he was engaged to another woman, Jesse. And at this time, Jesse had been dead for over 10 years. I mean, he named his boat after her and had pictures of her hanging in the house. And if that wasn't enough, he claimed that she was the finest woman he had ever met. So, I mean, I can, I can totally see Ruth. Ruth was starting out at a serious deficit with this guy. And I can totally see why she wanted him gone. And he's a jerk. I mean, you, you don't get married and then treat somebody like that. And, uh, but however, you know, divorce was probably your best option or just leave. Uh, but after seven years of marriage and they had a daughter named Lorraine, who was at this time probably six or seven and, uh, well, five or six, you know, Ruth, that's uh, tired of the home life with Snyder started going out with her friends to the city and enjoy all the things that the jazz age had to offer but she started an affair 
and this is the part that gets me. This is outgoing, vivacious, uh, supposedly very attractive woman. Starts an affair with a meek and mild little bispectacle-wearing man named Henry Judd Gray. Not that there's anything wrong with little guys that wear glasses, but this, this guy was not a ladies' man at all. And a lot of things that I, I read said this is when she started to begin to plan her husband's funeral. But, you know, let's be realistic. She started an affair with this little feller because she knew she could manipulate the hell out of him and play him like a marionette. Uh, Henry, in all outward appearances, he was a good father and a husband. And, but he was, a, he was a corset salesman from New Jersey and sang in the church choir and uh, seemingly a gentleman. Like I said, the mousy little guy was no ladies' man. And this affair went on for a year. Over the years, Albert increasingly became more and more difficult to deal with, not just because of the things I stated earlier. He also had a drinking issue. And the more that he drank, the more his vicious temper came to light and he would often take it out on his wife and his daughter. So obviously this guy, Albert, was a, he was such a jerk. So at this, at this point, Ruth manipulated, I say manipulated, coerced, manipulated, whatever you want to say, manipulated Albert into signing a life insurance policy with a double indemnity clause that I think it was a $48,000 policy at the time worth more like 1.6 million in today's money but it was it paid double if an unexpected act of violence had killed him and that was in the insurance policy the insurance agent aware of the ruse was later he was later fired for his assistance in this thing and i'm assuming ruth uh, manipulated him too if you know what i mean so you know ruth set out to the the killer husband she started out by spiking his whiskey with bichloride of mercury, sprinkling poison on his prune whip. Prune whip must have been a big deal back then in the day. Prune, there's a lot of poisoning going on with prunes back then. She tried gassing him by running a, a, a hose into their bedroom. Uh, she, there's a bunch of stuff she tried, but it didn't phase him any, and he never suspected a thing. So it was time for Ruth to bring in her buddy, Henry Judd Gray. So on uh, March 20th, 1927, the two, they, I guess they had planned this all out, and the two, they put their plan into action. And as Albert slept, Henry Judd snuck into the room with a sash weight. So if y'all don't know what a sash weight is, it's a, looks like a, looks kind of like a torpedo, to be honest with you. And in the old houses, you know, they had the wide window trim in the old houses, and then behind that window trim is a weight that's like a, a counterweight. For the window so it made it easier to open the window so these sash weights were were pretty common back then i think even me and walter's first house that we bought like a billion years ago it it was an old house and it had sash weights in the in the windows so anyway so you know not only was henry judd wasn't a ladies man but he also wasn't a killer either he snuck into the room where albert was sleeping and he hit Albert with the sash weight, but it was only hard enough to wake him up. Albert woke up and grabbed Henry by his his tie, <laughs> and uh, and and Henry Judd started screaming, "Momsy, Momsy!" He called he called Ruth Momsy, Momsy, Momsy. She came running in and grabbed the sash weight from him and started bashing Albert's head in with the sash weight, which I don't mean to laugh at it, but 
that whole scene is just amazing. But anyway, the uh, she managed to, to hit him hard enough with it a couple times to put him back down on the bed. And then they stuffed chloroform-soaked rags up his nose and then garroted him with a picture wire. And then they began phase two of the operation. They opened up the doors and turned over the furniture and ripped open the, you know, the couch cushion pillows. And for some unknown reason, uh, Ruth had given uh, Henry Judd Gray all of her jewelry, but he refused to take it. So they hid it under the mattress in their room. They had a fur coat. They put a fur coat in a bag and hid that in the closet. They had a brilliant idea of taking the murder weapon, this big torpedo looking weight, rubbing it with rubbing ashes on it, I guess from their heating uh, furnace. And then they stashed it away in Albert's toolboxes. So then they started on phase three of the plan. Ruth wanted uh, Henry Gray to, to knock her unconscious, but he wouldn't do it. And I mean, she really should have picked a better accomplice than this guy. But anyway, so he tied her up and put cheesecloth in her mouth. And by about 7.30 the next morning, she had, had dragged herself into her daughter's room the little girl untied her and they called the police. So when the police got there, it didn't take them long. They, they got looking over the scene. There's there. They, they pretty much called bullshit on this whole charade right from the beginning. Cause let's be realistic. I mean, criminals don't flip over couches and do all that kind of stuff. And there was no forced entry marks on the house anywhere on any of the doors. They found the jewels. They found the coat. They found the sash weight. In no time at all. It didn't take them. It was still covered with blood. It still had the sash weight still had blood on it and mixed with ash. So they got Ruth in the police station and they were asking her questions about what happened again and the whole thing. And I mean, the, the, the police could see right through this whole ordeal. And But they had found a piece of paper in the house that had JG on it. And it, what it was, it was a paper that Albert had kept from his fiance and her name was Jessie Gouchard. But Ruth's immediate response to the police question was, what did Judd Gray have to do with the murder? Well, they didn't know anything about a Henry Judd Gray until she said that. And, you know, that was the first time they heard of it, that his name was brought to their attention. And in no time, the police had tracked down Gray to Syracuse, New York. He he took off on the train to Syracuse. And one of his friends was going to be his alibi witness. But the the friend wouldn't cover for him. They, They pretty much grabbed Henry and took him back to New York City. The police were able to wrap this whole thing up in less than 24 hours. Now these two thought they had pulled off the perfect murder. The the press referred to them as the dumbbell murders. The story of this crime went absolutely viral and Ruth Snyder, the curvaceous Queen's housewife, became the most detested woman of the time. And as the trial began, It was a media circus only topped by the Lindbergh flight, as far as news goes. And uh, apparently it was quite the spectacle. It had it all. It had sex, lies, betrayal, murder, and comedy. At one point when Ruth was on the stand, the assistant district attorney was grilling her on another affair that she had had with a man named Lesser. And he asked Ruth, did you know Lesser carnally? And Ruth answered, yes, but only in a business kind of way. As you can imagine, they were found guilty and sentenced to death. And the public had followed this case very closely, and they were quite inflamed or upset over it. Every member of the Court of Appeals received a postcard stating, We will shoot you 
if you let that Snyder woman go free, she must be electrocuted, and the public demands it. If she's not done away with, others will do the same thing. She must be made an example of. We are watching out. Sign the public. That's a pretty ominous postcard. I'm thinking <laughs> I'm thinking a group of men uh, kind of acting along the lines of Albert Snyder sent that message because uh, they probably had trouble sleeping that night after what happened to Albert anyway. So being that we're looking down the barrel of an electrocution in 1928, why don't we have Mr. Peterson tell us a little bit about it? Hey boys and girls, this is Rupert Peterson, and today's word is electric chair. Can you say that? I like the way you say that. We're going to learn about the electric chair today. The idea of the electric chair was conceptualized by Alfred P. Southwick, a dentist from Buffalo, New York in 1881. Imagine that a dentist came up with the electric chair. And during its use, the individual sentenced to death is securely strapped to a specifically designed wooden chair and electrocuted via strategically positioned electrodes affixed to the head and leg. Over the following decade, the execution technique was developed further aiming to provide a more humane alternative to conventional forms of execution, particularly hanging, because apparently sending a bolt of lightning through somebody and catching them on fire is much more humane than hanging. The electric chair was first utilized in 1890. Now how this idea came about in the late uh, 1870s to early 1880s, the spread of arc lighting, a type of outdoor street lighting that required high voltages and range of 3,000 to 6,000 volts. But one story after another in the newspapers about how high voltages were killing people, usually unwary linemen. It was a strange new phenomenon at that time. It seemed to instantaneously strike a victim dead without leaving a mark. So apparently this dentist thought, hey, that's a great idea. So in 1888, a commission recommended using electrocution using Southwick's electric chair idea with metal conductors attached to the condemned person's head and feet. So they built a few of them and put them at Auburn Prison and Clinton Prison and Sing Sing Prisons. And following that, the legislature was signed and they were set to start executing folks. The first person to actually go to the electric chair was William Kemmler. He was convicted of murdering his wife with a hatchet. So on August 6th in 1890 in Auburn Prison, the state electrician first sent a 17-second passage of a thousand volts through Kemmler, which just kind of caused the unconsciousness but failed to stop his heart and his breathing. So they had to hit him again with more electricity, but they had to have the generator turned on and it needed time to recharge because this was 1890, not 1990. However, the second attempt Kemmler received a 2,000 volt shock and that pretty much did him in. And some of the witnesses said that he caught fire. 
and the whole entire execution took about eight minutes and that is way more humane than hanging so after they caught this poor fella on fire and it took them eight minutes to put him out other states said hey that's a great idea so in 1897 Ohio adopted electrocution and in 1900 Massachusetts adopted electrocution New Jersey in 1906 in Virginia in 1908 so that's the quick and dirty story of electrocution and the electric chair so uh, shortly after 11 p.m. January 27th 1928 they got their wish Ruth went to Old Sparky followed eight minutes later by Henry Judd Gray it must have been a little rough on Henry to walking into the room behind Ruth. You know, they say, I've heard people say the, the worst thing about going to a public restroom is when you they're gross to start with. But then when you sit down on the seat and the seat's warm, it's the worst. Can you imagine going and sitting down on a warm electric chair seat? <laughs> Making light of it, but it's a terrible thing. But, but anyway, it gets us to this point. Now, this is what makes this story so interesting. Seated amongst the spectators was Tom Howard, a photographer, posing as a reporter. He was brought in by the uh, New York Daily News on loan from the Chicago Tribune, and Howard had a small camera strapped to his ankle with a cable that ran up his pant legs to his pocket. And when the first jolt of electricity hit Ruth, he released a shutter, capturing the only known photo of a woman being electrocuted in the USA. Howard received a $100 bonus for his troubles and, and really a place in history because this, this photo is iconic. That camera is now part of the collections of the Smithsonian Museum of American History. I believe Ruth was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Queens and Henry Judd Gray was buried in Montclair, New Jersey. Their daughter, Lorraine Snyder, I believe went to stay at like a Catholic institution for kids or something like that for a time. And then um, Ruth's mother ended up getting custody of her with all that insurance stuff they had going on. One of the insurance payouts would pay uh, $4,000 for the care of Lorraine, which is about 70000 in today's money. And um, the other policies were not paid out because they had been issued fraudulently. Actually, Henry Judd Gray's daughter received uh, $30,000, which is like 500000 in today's money. In 1943, James Kane. James M. Cain wrote um, a best-selling novel based on this case called Double Indemnity. And in 1944, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler turned it into a movie. And it starred uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. And uh, it was considered to be the first crime noir film. I watched it, but, you know, seeing Fred McMurray in a role as a tough-talking wise guy who's really hard to watch after growing up uh, seeing him in roles like you know, you know the dad on my three sons and the disney movies he was in but anyway the movie was a big hit so anyway that's the story of ruth snyder and the famous picture you know ruth wanted to do away with her husband that she really didn't want in the first place make some money off of it and it cost her everything and made her daughter an orphan made a ton of money for a bunch of other people now I made light of some of the things in, in this story. Ab abuse, domestic violence is never funny. 
but there's a lot of resources out there if you're in that situation. Reach out to somebody, friends, family. There's also a, a number you can call or text one eight five five four victim That's one 484 2846 victim If you're in a situation like that, please reach out for help. Okay, so let's do a little news. Just for fun, we'll do some news. I've had this one. <laughs> I've had this one saved in my phone for a little while. Um, this one, uh, this news here story comes, this news story comes from Oklahoma. And, you know, we always goof on Florida, Florida, Florida man this and Florida man that. Well, Oklahoma is not far behind Florida. And the headline is, Oklahoma man survives after he's stabbed in the head with a flagpole at a Sonic drive-in restaurant. And the police said the American flag was still attached after the pole had gone through the victim's head. And I'm doing my best to do all this with a straight face and not laugh. Because it's not really funny, but it is kind of funny. An Oklahoma man stabbed another man in the head with a flagpole at a Sonic drive-in restaurant, according to a Tulsa police. The officers were called around 7.30 to the Sonic at Tulsa Hills in reference to a stabbing. They said 7.30. Did y'all catch that? 7.30. It's not 1.30 in the morning or 12.30. It's 7.30. They didn't even have time to go out drinking before this happened. Upon arrival, officers found a male victim with a flagpole through his head, and the pole had entered the victim's head beneath his jaw and exited the other side of his head near his right temple area. The American flag was still attached to the pole. Witnesses told police that they saw the suspect, identified as uh, Clinton Collins, charge the victim and stab him in the head with the flagpole. Witnesses uh, said they heard Collins say, That's what he gets. He deserved it. And uh, Collins was quickly taken into custody after the officers arrived. I'm thinking there might have been some alcohol involved in this or, well, who knows, maybe one of them took the other one's ice cream or something. The firefighters had to cut some of the flagpole in order for the victim to fit into the ambulance. And the victim miraculously survived this brutal maiming, but will likely lose some vision, which is unfortunate. I hope he recovers okay. And uh, Collins is charged with maiming, and uh, it'll be a felony. And um, he's held in uh, the Tulsa County Jail. I was holding on to that news story for a little while. But let's do an oddity. Well, it's not an oddity, maybe. It's kind of neat, though. This next one is, uh, it comes from uh, the Mediterranean, uh, Corsica, the island that sits off the, the coast of France, just west of the Italian uh, peninsula, the boot. You know, it's, man, it's a historic place. That's where Napoleon Bonaparte was born. But the island has a mischievous inhabitant that is rarely seen and is uh, locally known as the Jatu Volpe, or the Cat Fox. Having long been a part of Corsica's folklore, the cat fox was only recently discovered to be its own species. So it all this all started back in 2008 when uh, somebody found one of these cats in their, their chicken coop. They'd always heard about them, and from time to time they're seen. Sounds kind of like Bigfoot. You know, you hear about them, don't always see them. They, they found a little guy. Hiding out, he's he got ended up getting uh, caught in the, the the chicken pen. He got in the chicken pen and the door shut, and he got caught in there. For a long time, they always said that these little these little guys would uh, have run-ins with local shepherds, 
apparently the the cats would um they would appear from the forest and attack the udders of uh, uh ewes and cattle i guess getting looking for milk i don't know cats like milk so they started doing some research on these guys and what they found out was what they did was it was kind of this is kind of cool um they took feline essence and they put on wooden sticks and put the sticks out through the woods and the cats would come and rub up against the sticks and the because they could smell the they you know they could smell the scent or the pheromones i guess that's the right word and when they leave their hair stuck to the stick and then the scientists were getting the hair off the stick so it's kind of a neat idea after analyzing the the fur and that live specimen um their discovery was realized that the cat fox are not related to any european wildcat instead they're their own unique species specific to the french mediterranean island so it has its own unique genetic strain to the wildcats and they have pictures of them online man they're really they're kind of they're pretty cats they have a dark tail with rings and then their legs have dark rings on them and so with their discovery and and checking out some of the live ones they have like highly developed canine teeth and short whiskers and very wide ears they measure about 35 inches long from head to tail and like i said they have a distinct uh, black ring tail and uh, they're really actually they're pretty cats but the the reason for them being so secretive and elusive is because although they're they're a cat they're a predator they are prey for the golden eagle that lives on the island and so because of that the golden eagle's presence they they remained elusive so they wouldn't get snatched up by the eagle so i guess on corsica birds hunt cats even though this cat was caught with it <laughs> he was caught in the, the chicken coop so i guess they hunt birds also but the uh, remote habitat that they live in uh, they they stay pretty much covered up by plants and water and provide pr- uh, plenty of protection from the from the big birds so since 2016 they've trapped about a dozen of the cats and uh uh, during examinations before re-release the scientists have gathered plenty of data and know that the cat is recognized as a new species so there you go so found another new species i think that's pretty cool well that's the show thank you all again for tuning in i hope everyone stays happy and healthy and be nice it doesn't cost anything to hold the door for somebody or give them a big smile and you dads out there Hit pause on the game and go read to your kids for 15 minutes. It'll mean the world to them. Talk to y'all soon.